Couldn't have chosen a better set myself. Aren't you proud of me that I know what a set is in general? <laughs> hey, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me? Or if you have your phones, just Google it. Acts 16, we're going to start looking at a, a little section in the book of Acts as we continue the conversation that we started last week. Last week, we began a conversation that I hope, I, I hope, I hope the conversation that we started emerges a new hope that maybe wasn't previously there beforehand. What we've been talking about and what the session and Carter has asked me specifically to do is to come in this season of the life of the Church of Cornerstone uh, and, and just really ask questions. Ask questions about where, where, where are we going? What is God calling us to? And so sometimes, just like, just like in the life of the individual, you know, one of the greatest things about being a human is our ability to dream. Again, not like when you go to sleep you have dreams, that's another thing in and of itself. I mean your waking dreams. Your dreams you have for your life, for yourself. Who you want to be, what you want to do, what you want to accomplish. But all of those dreams, as you and I know very well, have a price tag attached to them. They all cost something. And we all know what happens when we can't pay the cost. Either the dream stalls or it shatters. And there is nothing more excruciating. There's nothing more painful. There's nothing, nothing in the world more disorienting than when our dreams shatter into billions of pieces. And just as that's true as individuals, it's also true for communities. Communities have dreams. Churches have dreams. Cornerstone has a beautiful dream. And that dream was birthed in a living room in Spring Branch in 1981. And that dream has been successfully passed down from generation to generation. And even though it feels at times that the dream is stalling, that it's frustrated, that it may be even shattering, that is specifically what we saw last week in Psalm 61. From Psalm 61, that's exactly where God shows up in the most mighty of ways. And when he shows up, there's a new hope that emerges from the ruins that were that dream. And the beautiful thing that he does, that he doesn't have to do, the gracious thing that he does, even though he's not obligated to do it, is he replaces our dreams, our broken dream, with his own dream, which is so much more magnificent. than anything we could have asked or imagined. And he's asking us to trust him. So we're going to continue the conversation today. Now listen, let me, I'm going to say the same thing I said last week. I'm not an expert. I am a participant in this process. Together, we're learning what it looks like to live into God's dream for us versus trying to manifest our own dream that, that ends up breaking and frustrating anyways. That's what we're asking. We're asking, God, what is your dream for us? And I think from this passage in particular, we're going to glean two different aspects of God's dream for us as a church. And there are two things, and these are not revolutionary terms. These are, you know, if you are even quasi-familiar with Christian literature, you, you'll see these things all over the place. But essentially, God's dream has two different outcomes that we're going to see in the book of Acts in this little short little segment. And the two outcomes are this. Here's God's dream for the church, past, present, and future. Ready? That the church be Christ-centered and that it be people-focused. Christ-centered, people-focused. In one sense, 
spoiler alert, that's God's dream for Cornerstone. Right? Okay, we're done. We can close it up and, and go eat. Ah, thank you. No, 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 no. But nevertheless, in one sense, that is God's dream for Cornerstone, but there's also a unique aspect to it because you're unique. Your personalities are unique. Your gift sets are unique. Our place and time in history is unique. Therefore, that dream takes on an adaptive shape. So as we look at God's general dream for the church, past, present, future, that it be Christ-centered and people-focused, at the same time, we need to understand that God is calling us specifically in a unique way to adapt his universal dream in this particular context amongst you particular people. So let's look at Acts 16. I'm going to read just a short little, short little bit. Starting in verse 6, Luke writes this, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. To me, that is one of the weirdest verses in the Bible. We'll talk about it. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Second most weird verse in the Bible. We'll talk about it. And then verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. Father, would you be so merciful and gracious to us this morning? Father, wherever we are at, in our individual lives, in our church life, however, whatever feelings and emotions that we are bringing to worship today, Lord, would you make one thing abundantly clear to us? Through all of the joys that we've experienced throughout the week and all the frustrations, would you make one thing abundantly clear that you care about us? And that when we are weak, you are strong. And we are not a burden to you. You lovingly open your arms and allow us to approach you. Because you care. You don't have to be like that, but you are. Father, as we have this conversation, which arises lots of feelings, some feelings of excitement, some feelings of frustration, some feelings of, well, why is this guy even talking about these things? Lord, wherever we're at, would you just give us a sense that you are doing something mighty? And for that, we can hope, and for that, we can trust. Lord, we love you. We cherish you. Would you speak to us in a mighty, mighty way this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God's dream for the church is that, first of all, that the church be Christ-centered. There is, since the mid-2000s, I don't think in Christian literature there has been a phrase that has been used more than that. But by golly, it's a good one. It's a very good one, and for good reason. Now, when Luke is writing this, I think there's one thing that we need to, let me put it out there, just so that we can consider it, and it's this. Luke is not necessarily writing a didactic, expressive checklist of what a Christ-centered church looks like. That's not what's occurring here. So here's the way I want to phrase it or set it up. Luke is showing us what it looks like for the church to be Christ-centered versus telling us. You see the difference? He's modeling for us, or he's using this account with Paul and his friends on the second missionary journey to show us what this looks like. And what, what arises from this first couple verses is there's this sense that the church, from its inception, has had to be absolutely, totally dependent 
on Christ's spirit for their work. In a nutshell, that's what being Christ-centered is. It means you're utterly dependent on Christ for your life. That's ultimately what it means. But in particular, there's two things that we see here that Luke is illustrating that I think is really helpful. And when it comes to prioritizing or depending on Christ, there's two things that he shows us, and it's this. Number one, a Christ-centered church is focused and prioritizing is is focused on prioritizing God's voice. Now, again, this seems so elementary, but, you know, as the wise men once said, anything worth saying is worth saying twice, right? Anything worth hearing is worth hearing twice. To be Christ-centered, first and foremost, means prioritizing God's voice. The God of the Bible is a speaking God. He brings the world forth with His words, with his voice, even when sin clutters and, and breaks and destroys the world as in which we know it, he still is speaking. He's still calling. He's still involved. And in the most vivid way possible, he speaks through his son. And now we have the benefit of the written word before us. Once God's voice is heard, my friends, once his voice is heard, it's really hard to unhear. Or maybe another way to say it is, it's much more difficult to ignore. When God speaks, when his voice is heard, it's hard to unhear it. Why in the world are Paul and his friends doing this? You know, they're not vacationing. They're not, this is not like necessarily, you know, some kind of like tangential, just, just uh, free, free fun thing that they're doing. They're on a mission trip. They have a goal in mind. But why are they doing it? The primary reason is because each of them in their own life has heard the voice of the Lord and they cannot go back to unhearing it. And it's so wooing and it's so efficacious and it's so wonderful that they want other people to hear it as well. Christ-centered churches prioritize God's voice for themselves and they long for other people to prioritize it as well. But there's also another thing that Luke points out that's so interesting to me as far as in regards of what a, how a Christ-centered church operates. One, they hear God's voice, but then the second thing is they, re, they reorient their life around that voice. They reorient their entire life around the voice of God speaking to them. Now, all of us operate within typically three different categories, spheres of life, we can call it where we live, where we work, where we play. There's other ways to describe it, but you, you get my drift. We all operate in these different spheres, and there's not a sphere that we belong to in this life that God is not addressing personally in how you ought to operate and how you ought not to operate. And it would behoove us to be sensitive to that. The, the Christ-centered church is aware of that, that God speaks to how you should operate at work, or when you're enjoying your hobbies, or when you're with your family. Like God is addressing those things specifically. Now, listen, for the modern person, that is just a bunch of whack. For a modern person hearing that, listen, that, it may, maybe, that, maybe that's you. Maybe you're hearing that saying, wow, that's weird. Not only is it weird, that's kind of oppressive. Like, I thought this God wanted, wanted you to be free, but yet he's telling you everything to do in every little nook and cranny of your life? Now, at face value, listen, that's, that's a legitimate objection. So if you're there, hey, I just, I just want to validate. Like, hey, I understand. I see the logic in that. It does, at face value, seem like God wants us just to operate as robots. He's just telling us what to do. You know, freedom is not a concern. You know, our freedom is not a concern to him. I, underst I understand. Or maybe you know people that, that, that believe that. We need to be sympathetic to that. That makes sense. That's a legitimate objection. 
However, there is a flaw, if I may say it, in the objection, and that's it assumes there's no harmony between ultimately what we really want for ourselves and what God wants for us. You see what I'm saying? Like there's that's a possibility. And what I mean by that, specifically, like let's take one of these spheres of life, let's just take the vocational sphere. Because you know what Barna says that Westerns, Westerners in general, or I'm sorry, specifically, value work their job, their career, more than any other category in life, including happiness. Now, there's probably a connection there, but it's just fascinating. So let's talk about your work. Let's talk about vocation for a second. In this vocational sphere, you know, the band of friends, right, the missionaries, Paul, Silas, Luke, uh, sorry, there's one more. The other guy, you know, there's Paul, Timothy, Timothy, like, uh, they, they all have occupations prior to becoming missionaries, Right, you do realize that. Like Paul, in in in, in a very oversimplified manner, is is an academician. Right, he's he he does that. Luke is a doctor. Now, when they become Christians, God doesn't take those things doesn't take those things away. He doesn't take those things away. In one sense, he enhances those things in their life. What he does when they become Christians, he reorients how they approach their work. See, Paul, like us found his identity in his vocation. Like, look, at in, in the book of Philippians, another book that he writes in chapter 3, he goes on and on and on about his resume, remember? This is who I thought I was. This is how I knew I had purpose in the world because I was a Jew, a Jew, a Pharisee, all of those different things. He found, just like you and I, we find a lot of our identity in our jobs, in our vocation. We know that. Yet, when he becomes a Christian, he finds a stronger identity. So that when he operates inside his vocation, he operates differently. His orientation has changed. His, his need to be defined by what he does is no longer true. So now he has the freedom to do his job being fully secure in a more strong identity other than, than, than his work. There is a harmony, a beauty between what we really want for ourselves and what God wants for us. It's not oppression. It's an abundance of freedom. It's an enhancing. It's a becoming a better, more well-equipped, fuller version of yourself than if we don't trust him. This is why, the God, this is why a Christ-centered church hears God's voice and reorients our entire life where we live and work, work and play around that voice. Now, also, let me say, too, we're talking about missionaries, and so I don't think Luke's point is not saying to be a Christ-centered church or to be a Christ-centered individual, you have to be a missionary. That's not what he's saying at all. Not, not at all, right? That's not, that's not what he's saying. Rather, he's, or maybe we could put it like this, he's not advocating a certain kind of life. A Christ-centered person doesn't have this cookie-cutter life. Rather, it's a reorientation to the life that you have. Being Christ-centered means reorienting yourself to the life that you have. It's reorienting the way you think about your job, where you, where how you interact with other people, according to and based on the voice of the Lord himself. So my favorite, but let me also just say this too, that sometimes that's really painful, and sometimes that's really hard, because sometimes we don't like what that voice is telling us to do in certain situations. for this painful process at times is C.S. Lewis's illustration 
when he talks about reorienting our lives around the voice of the Lord. Are you guys familiar with this one? Where he says, or C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says that imagine yourself as a living house. You heard this before? Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks up on the roof. And, so, and you know, these, these jobs needed to be done, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking about the house in a way that hurts tremendously. And, he doesn't, and it doesn't seem to make any sense to you. What on earth is he up to? And the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. You thought, you thought he was building a decent little college, but in reality, he's building a palace a palace in which he intends to come and live. All of us, all of us, when we hear the voice of the Lord, it is a beautiful, wonderful thing, but oftentimes, sometimes it's painful. But our privilege, our joy, is being able to reorient our life around what that voice is telling us to do. This is how Christ-centered churches operate. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's painful, but it's always for the best because God knows what he's doing. Christ-centered churches listen and adapt uh, to this voice. Now, let's talk about what I think is the most surprising part about this text in particular. Paul and his friends, I mean, they're on their second missionary journey, and their desire is to bring the gospel to people that don't have it, to strengthen those who do. This is the whole reason in which they're going, yet the Spirit prevents them from going to a location. What, what in the world is happening here? Like, like, this doesn't make any sense really at all when you, when, you, when, you cons- when, you, when you first read it, or at least to me. I mean, Paul wants to go to certain locations, and, and the Spirit is saying, no, 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 we're not going there, Paul. You can't go there. And part of the reason why this question, I think, is so difficult is because, at least in this scene, we don't see the full picture. We have no idea what's going on. We don't know God's plan like like the way we want to know God's plan. We don't know what's happening. But now, if you take the book of Acts as a whole, what we do learn is that eventually these locations do receive the gospel. They do finally get the gospel, right? In fact, Bithynia becomes a, a, a pillar of the Christian faith, of the, of the Christian church. In fact, the first council of Nicaea was met around this location. So the gospel does come, but for some reason, God is saying, not today. We're not doing that. We're not doing that now. And the reason is because God has other plans, and those plans are going to unfold really the second major pillar of what it means, of what, of what God's dream for his church is. Because in one sense, it is being Christ-centered. It's listening to the voice of the Lord and reorienting our entire lives around that voice. But the second aspect is that we're also people-focused. People-focused. And if I can be honest for just a second, in my own life, I'll put myself on the chopping block. This one, this aspect of God's dream, I think is the most difficult. I think in some, in some degree, at least in my lifetime, the church has done a really good job about talking about being Christ-centered, finding the voice of the Lord, studying theology. I think we've done a really good job of that. I don't know if we've done as much work on the second part and being people-focused what do I mean by that? Well, more importantly, what does Luke mean by that? Look what Luke shows us in verse 6. Excuse me, verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, 
urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. God's dream, to me, this is just so exciting. You ready? God's dream for his church, quintessentially, in its essence, at its very root, is a missional dream. You catch that? God's dream at its root level is a missional dream. The missiologist Michael Goheen, who is, who is a, just a rock star of an individual, has written extensively on God's dream, his plan, his purpose for the church being missional. And in one place he writes this. He writes about the logic of it. He says, the logic of mission is this. The true meaning of the human story has been disclosed. I love that line. The true meaning of what it means to be human has been revealed. He says, because of this, the truth must be shared universally. It cannot be a private opinion. When we share it with all peoples, we give them the opportunity to know the truth about themselves, to know, how they, to know who they are because they can know the true story of which their lives are a part. Jesus has revealed and accomplished in time salvation. This news must be made known to the ends of the earth. This is God's dream. This is what it means. To, this is why it's people-focused. The baby is totally cool. Totally, totally fine. He's excited too. I want you to be excited about this. <laughs> In verses 8 and 9, we get to see more light that's being shined on why God prevents them from going into these locations. It's not because somehow the Macedonians are more valuable or somehow they're going to be them being on God's team is going to make God's team stronger. No, that's not it at all. In fact, the reason why he's calling them to go to Macedonia and not where Paul originally wanted to go is because God is in Macedonia and God is already working in Macedonia. And what God is doing is telling Paul Hey guys, I've set you up here. I want you to come. I'm going to be your Scotty Pippen and you get to be Michael Jordan and dunk the ball. I'm already working over here. I want you to come here. So it's not that he's not working over in another place or he's not going to work in a different place, but he says right now the task is here because this is where I'm at. And I need you to come here. This is the assignment. So when Paul sees the vision of the Macedonian man, the first thing the first thing that occurs is he sees this, he is able to identify the man, his ethnicity, his language, his quirks, his beliefs, his loves. Like, he identifies him as a human being. Like, this is astonishing. Think about other, if you're even quasi-related to, you know, some of the stories about visions and dreams in the Old Testament in particular. Like, think about those, think about how many of those dreams are anti-personal. Is that the right, that's not the right word. What, what am I trying to say? Like, there's no smoking pot here. There's no, there's no sheet, you know, with, with animals you can eat on it. Here, it's a person with hopes and dreams and loves and values. And Paul's able to identify it. Why a vision like this? Because God's dream for the church is that we be people-focused. And no one exemplifies this more than Jesus himself, Right? My favorite illustration of this from Jesus is in John chapter 4. Jesus and the disciples are going from Judea to Galilee, and Jesus says, hey, let's make a pick stop through Samaria. What did the disciples say? Absolutely not. For racial reasons, for, for ethnic reasons, cultural reasons. Like, we just don't associate with those people. We're not doing that. And Jesus says, no, 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 we are doing that. 
And he doesn't say this, but how I hear him saying it is we are going there. And do you know why we're going there, disciples? Because she's there. Because there's a woman that I need to talk to who is ashamed, who's in distress. There's one person that I need to reach, that I need to love, and I'm the only person that can fix her. So guess what, boys? Yes, we're going to Samaria because there's a woman at a well there that I've got to meet. You see, Jesus is people-focused because his father's dream is that his people be people-focused. Paul's vision continues when the Macedonian man begins to speak to him. And what does he say? Come over here. And look, we can't know this for sure, but I think we have good reason to believe this request had to cause some kind of discomfort in Paul. Paul already had a plan where he wanted to go. He already had his own reasons, his own desires for wanting to go to a certain, certain location, and now God's telling him something different. Now, Paul's a human. You know, sometimes we, we think he's, you know, you know the Superman of the, of the New Testament, you know, like immune to human emotions and, and frustrations, but that's just not the case. No, I imagine Paul is somewhat frustrated. And if we were in his shoes, we may be somewhat frustrated. We have a plan, we want to do this, and now God's telling us to do, to do this. And here's, I think, one of the things that we're discovering. In God's dream, being people-focused, it's not always about place as much as it is about people. The church is not, per se, I'm working through this. This could be totally wrong. So if you want to email me about, you know, maybe you disagree. I don't know, still working through this. What do you think about this? I don't think the church is called to serve a particular place. I think the church is called to serve a particular people that live in a place. Place does not matter as much as people matter. And this is what Paul is learning. This is what Luke is showing us as they're figuring all of this stuff out. And then, and then the Macedonian man states why he wants Paul to come. Why? Help us. Scholars will tell us and show us that this help us language is, is language of distress. It's the same phrase used in Mark 9 when the, when the boy is crying for Jesus to heal his, his son. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief, right? Like this, this spiritual distress in particular. And the same thing is occurring here. The man knows that he and his countrymen are in trouble, that they're in distress. He knows that they need help. Their hearts are open to the gospel. They want something secure and beautiful that's going to make them a better version of themselves, a more free version, a forgiven version. They're ready for the gospel. They're asking for the gospel to become. Now, how does that happen? It happens because, remember, God is already there. He's already gone before. He's already working. He's cultivating all of these things to come to fruition. And now, he's, now Paul and his friends are being summoned to go participate in what God is already doing. My friends, listen. The same is true for the church today. The very same thing is, very, is, 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 is true today. Every church, like every Christian, has a unique gift set, has a unique personality. We could say it like this, has its own unique fingerprint. And while the, God's dream always for the church will be that we are Christ-centered, people-focused, we do, we do, we are called to a unique expression of that. 
in our, in our time and place based on our gifts and, and skills and strengths and place and time. The question that every congregation, including Cornerstone, has to, has to ask is this. Who are the people, not the place, who are the people that God is calling us to serve and love and show the gospel or share the gospel with? Who are the people? And can I be really honest for a second? In my experience of being in lots of churches, in Katy, Texas in particular, I don't know if we really prioritize that question the way that we need to. Churches, we do lots of great things. I'm speaking of churches in general, in Houston and Texas and wherever. We do great things. We do wonderful teachings. We have wonderful Bible studies. And we do a lot of great, and those things are great, and they need to keep happening. But where are the spaces that we're asking this question? Are we asking this question? Who are the people that we're to serve? This is such a huge aspect of God's dream. So, so, so how, do we, how do we prioritize this? Let me first say, honestly, I don't know. I don't know. But I want to learn, and I want to learn with you. And I think together we can learn what that looks like here. But I think there are two general ideas, practical, two general practical ways in which we can begin moving in that direction of just bolstering up our people focusing. And the first is this. It's being overwhelmed, becoming overwhelmed, continuing to be overwhelmed with how people-centered God has been to you. Christ wraps himself in human flesh. He literally moves heaven and earth to come here to pay for our sins to serve us, to love us, to care for us. Why? Because he's people-focused, and you're people. And there, is, and there is a contingency in that the more we trust, the more we are overwhelmed with what Christ has done for us, it bleeds over into, our, into how we treat and think about other people. That's a real thing. So first is being overwhelmed with what God has done for us in Christ specifically. Second is this. This one's harder because it involves us doing. But it's this. It's cultivating real relationships with the people that you live, work, and play around. Listen, I know this is a hard category to talk about, being people-focused and missions and evangelism. All, all those things are hard and they're difficult. But at the, at, the end, at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. <laughs> it's being good friends. It's really caring for people. For one, just one, do this with me. I want, don't, don't say it out loud, just in your own mind, think. About all of your, out of all your coworkers or neighbors or family or friends, maybe out of all the people that you interact with on a semi-regular basis, how many of those people do you, could you genuinely say, I know their story? Well, here's an even harder one. How many friends do you have in your life that, do not have your convictions or don't have your values. They may not be religious. Do you have any friends like that in your life? I think that is a really, I, and I know that's hard, and I know that's messy, but this is what God is inviting us to do. This is his dream for us, that we be people-focused 
And we can't be people-focused if we're not cultivating relationships with people. Right? So here, let me say this. Tom Rayner said, excuse me, Sam Rayner, his son, said this. And I, I want to say this as an encouragement. This is an encouragement. At the same time, it's a reality. Sam Rayner has done tons of post-COVID study, and he, is, he and his team are making projections for uh, church trends in the future. And he says this. He says, churches that will grow in the next five years. So this research came out this past January. So we're in 23, so by 2028-9. So the churches that will grow will be churches that focus on going out. And he says there's a twofold strategy to this. The first is this. The church, the church's culture will continue moving into the community and not away from it, number one. And then number two, that the leadership will train the congregation to be ready for evangelism opportunities, fulfilling their responsibility to discipline, to disciple and equip God's people in very practical ways. Those are hard to hear for me. And look, I'm a pastor, and it's still hard to hear. At the same time, I think we need to hear it because it's a reminder that... God's dream is that we're people-focused. This has got to be a priority to us as, as a church and also as individuals. Listen, let me say, let me say this, and I'll only close with this. God's dream for the church in all of its historical settings and times really has been the same. He wants this church to be Christ-centered, people-focused. We have the opportunity of making that uniquely cornerstone. We have the opportunity of praying and getting creative and thinking about, well, what, what does that look like for us? What does that look like for, for how, how we're going to love people? Or, or the, the world is, is your oyster. It's so exciting and encouraging to think about all of the possibilities. And I know, listen, I know some of you, I know, listen, man bun, we tried a bunch of those things and blah, blah, blah. I, I get it. I understand. I understand. I understand. I get it. But you know what? God has a dream for this church, and he's inviting us to be faithful and to trust him. And I think that sounds rather exciting. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you have a dream for your church and that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Father, would you teach us what it means to be Christ-centered as individuals and also as a community? Father, would you teach us, even though it's hard, would you help us create habits that, that, that get us to prioritize what it means to be people-focused? We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.